Welcome to the Slice Podcast, brought to you by Jackfruit. Jackfruit brings you the latest shit you don't hear anywhere else. Hey, what's up, dog? Welcome to Jackfruit, dog. What up? This is Stephen Lee. Thanks for tuning back into the Jackfruit Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest who has made a, quite a name for himself in the fashion industry. Welcome, Chris No. We are excited to have you, bro. Uh, thank you for having me, fellas. What up, Chris? What up, what up? So, Chris, uh, where were you born and where did you go to high school and college? Okay. Um, I was actually born in Thailand. Um, we immigrated over in like 83. So um, I'm a refugee kid. So my parents made the trek in 75. Um, my mom was stuck in uh, refugee camps until like 83. And then we finally made it over on a fisherman's boat in 83. So we have like that true refugee story. So that's uh, that's where I came from, from, Thailand. So I'm Vietnamese, but I've never been a, I've never been to Vietnam until like up until like the last 15 years ago. That's crazy because my parents went to Thailand about the same time and my sister was born in 83. Okay. So I wonder if my parents could have been in the same refugee camp as yours. Uh, you should ask your parents if it's some, it's called, it's, I can't pronounce it. It's called Sunkhla. It's S-O-N-G-K-H-L-A. It's the only refugee camp in Thailand that's on the beach. And that's pretty much all the Vietnamese people. And I can pretty much guarantee you, we, uh, your parents and my parents were in the same refugee camp together. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah, as well. But yeah, I mean, um, after we left, I was actually uh, raised in Santa Ana. So uh, from 83 on, I was in Santa Ana. I went to high school out in uh, Fountain Valley uh, in uh, Los Amigos High School. So I went from high school from 96 to 99. So I'm a, I'm a little old. I grew up in like the late 90s. So you know that era. I was just going to ask about the your experience going back to Vietnam. You said you went back the last 15 years. When was the last time you, uh, you went back um, to Vietnam? I mean, what I, city? Mean, I, I mean, the first time I went back to Vietnam was like 2005 or 2006 with my wife. And that was the first time. So it was kind of eye opening. And we went to Vietnam and we went to, did we go to Thailand. No, we just went to Viet, we went to Vietnam and Thailand. And so that was like the first time I, I went back to Southeast Asia ever. Um, and it was just one of those things where it's like, like I'm half Vietnamese and half Thai. And so I never identified myself on the Thai side because obviously grew up with my mom and she's Vietnamese, my brother my half brothers and everybody else in like Westminster, everybody's Vietnamese. But growing up, I was a little bit on the darker side. I didn't look true Vietnamese. And so when I went back to Thailand for the first time, I'm just like, shit, I look like these people. This is this is my people. And my wife was just like laughing. She's like, bro, shit, you look exactly, you look more on the Thai side than you do on the Vietnamese side. And so the first time I went out there, I was like, oh shit, that's, that's wild. The most recent time I went out to Vietnam was probably about right before the pandemic in 2018. It was, um, it was for work, so we have factories out there that we were kind of like uh, scouting out. And so I've been in, uh, in Vietnam and uh, especially in Saigon, there's a lot of factories out there. So that was the last time I was out there. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these, uh, the factories are booming and, you know, the Vietnamese economy is booming. I mean, of course, Thailand, you know, it's really developing. And I don't know if you've been there in the last couple of years, right before the pandemic too, right? It's just... Yeah, yeah. I've been there quite a few times. I mean, me and my business partner, we travel out to Southeast Asia a lot because... Uh, we actually have a factory out in Guangzhou in China. So we were there every two and a half, every two to two and a half months, we're out in Asia. And so we always make that trip to like, I mean, Japan, Hong Kong, Macau, Vietnam, Thailand. So we travel around that area a lot up until like 2019 after, uh, before uh, COVID, of course. Nice. And like, and, and I guess that relates to, you know, what you just described in regards to your, your career and your job and, and all the stuff that you do out there and here too. So what was your first job ever and at what age? Oh, man. 
Um, my first job, I think I was 16 years old. Uh, no, no, no. It was my junior year of high school. Yeah, I, th- I was like around 16 years old, and it was at Mrs. Fields Cookies at South Coast Plaza. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my first job. So how did you end up or transitioning into getting into fashion? I mean, honestly, um, I've always had like a big passion with fashion growing up. I used to be a sneaker collector. I grew up that kid that was always into basketball. So I played high school basketball. So, you know, high school basketball, collecting Air Jordans, it kind of goes hand in hand. So I grew up in like the late 90s era. So I was that Asian kid that was rocking Fubu, South Pole, Air Jordans, and I was really into it, like really, really into it. I never thought I would ever make a career out of it, but what had happened was after graduating out of college, I was actually a communications advertising major. And then it was a semester right before I was about to graduate out of college. And they had somebody actually come down from the, from the local advertising agency. They would ask questions and shit like that too. And so they're like, oh yeah, it was a Q&A. And, and I was just straight to the point. Obviously, at the end of the day, I wanted to just make money. And I asked the lady, I was like, all right, if you don't mind me asking, how much money do you make? And she was just like, you know, I'm in my fifth year. I'm making $60,000. And I was just like, holy fucking shit, dude. I make that much selling shoes at, at Aldo. And at the time, I was, I was selling shoes at, at, at Aldo, making the same amount of money. I'm like, dude, I'm going to go to college and do that shit? Fuck that. I'm not going to do that bullshit. And so I decided after college, I was like, dude, I need to get into a position where I can make as much money as possible. Um, and at that time, um, in 2000 and, shit, it was 2004, 2005, that time everybody and their aunt was in real estate you know at one point everyone knew somebody that was a loan officer and so you know i I came straight out of college and i became a loan officer and obviously at that time with being a loan officer you know money was good i made i made more money than i thought i would be making at, at that age and then you know shit hit the fan within like eight months into the into the job our company just goes belly up and then you know we we just lose our job and and that's that and then what happened was funny because where I was living, I was running a room in the house. Literally, I was living out of the garage and my roommate had a boyfriend that had a clothing brand. And at that time, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, there's a trade show called Magic. And so Magic was like, it's huge. And I mean, if you know about trade show streetwear and everything too, during that time, Vegas would have a trade show twice a year called Magic. Vendors, brands and everything would fly out there, you know, set up their booth and, you know, just show their collections and everything too. And so my my roommate's boyfriend, you know, he had the brand. He asked me to come out there and just help him because he knew that, you know, I was on unemployment and he was like, hey, come out, help me at the trade show, see if you like it, whatever it is. Went out to the trade show. Just, you know, just shooting the shit. I just wanted to party in Vegas. Four days in Vegas. He said, I'll cover, I'll cover it. Dude, I'm going, you know? And so I go out there, um, you know, not expecting much, just hanging out and just uh, helping out the booth. And then one thing led to another. And like, I literally got my first sale out there. I was just talking to, uh, talking to this dude out in the back, like literally talking about shoes. So me and him are talking about like Nike Dunk SBs. And then he comes in and he sees me at the booth. And he's like, yo, Chris, he's like, is this your brand? I was like, yeah, I'm working here. I'm helping out. And he was like, let me take a look at it. And so I, I let him go through and we thumb through of the collection. And he's like, yo, I really like this. Yo, I, I'll take a five, 10, 10, five across the board. Um, just charge me my credit card when you're ready to go. And I'm like, what the fuck? I, I, obviously me being new, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Wow. Um, and then my buddy, uh, Joe, who owned the brand, is like, dude, he wants five, 10, 10, five across the board from small. That means he wants five smalls, 10 mediums, uh, 10 uh, larges, and five extra larges across the board means everything there. So I write up the whole order and it comes out to be like a $15,000 order. And my buddy's like, yo, I'll pay you, I'll pay you 10% of this order. Just continue doing this. And I was like, what the fuck? It's 1500 bucks. And so that's how it started. That's how I became a sales rep. After wow. that weekend, um, I just got stuck on that. That's tight. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh, but by the way, I'm a, I'm an advertising major too. So. 
you're an advertising agent too. Nice. Yeah, so like that's why I mean you're kind of leading into it. So I was just gonna ask you like, uh, so how, and then is that how you kind of started to leverage and kind of sparked that? You no, know? no. Honestly, I was a sales rep. I mean, I've been in the industry for quite a while. I came in at 23 years old. I didn't start to leverage until I was like 30 years old. You know, I was an independent sales rep repping a bunch of brands, and you know, I even managed a couple brands as well. So me and my business partner Lee who uh, is my partner for The Leverage, we met at a brand and I was there for seven years. I, I literally sat back, watched other people, you know, fuck up, make mistakes. And, you know, I kind of learned in their dime. It didn't happen overnight. Wow. And then at what point did you realize that you reached success? At what point did I realize I reached success? Honestly, it was the first month of, it, it's crazy though, because like, you know, as sales reps, you get used a lot. You know, like most brands that work with sales reps, you hire a sales rep, you, you know, they have the relationships in between you and the store. A sales rep is like a middleman, you know, like they're pretty much the ones like, you know, uh, doing the introduction, doing the heavy lifting. And they're like the, the face of every single company because they're the ones talking to the stores and communicating in between. But like uh, at that time that, you know, we were working with all these brands, we'd have like a six month contract, a one year contract, whatever we would. And then, you know, we would get these brands into stores. And then the next thing you know, they're like, okay, your contract's up. You know, I'm going to bring everything in house. And that have to pay a seller because now the brand has a relationship and stuff now, so they don't need to go through the seller anymore. And that that was that was the issue. I mean, that was always been the issue. I mean, when you're asking me when did I feel as if I had my first success, I would say when me and my business partner started our first brand. You know, even mm -hmm. though when we were seller on somebody else, we'd always have to look over our back and be like, "Fuck!" At any minute, they can pull this under our rug. Um, and then I'm stuck looking for the new brand or the, the next brand or looking for the next thing to, to sell. And it was like a constant, like it was a parasol. It was like in and out, in and out, in and out. And so that's the reason why I worked with so many single brands. So for us, uh, for me, myself personally, when I felt like I had successes, when we, you know, we rolled the dice and started our first brand, which was Embellish. So can, can you quickly summarize what The Leverage does for people that don't know? Okay. The Leverage is pretty much a parent company. It is a parent company. I mean, under the, so The Leverage is... Well, it's like a parent company. It's almost kind of hard to explain, but the leverage offers all everything. I have a 17,000 square feet facility here where we do all the logistics, the shipping, uh, the logistics, the shipping, the manufacturing. And we have an in-house sales team as well that does all the sales for uh, wholesale. So, you know, we work with over 1,500 retailers worldwide. Um, everybody from Nordstrom's, Zoomies, PacSun, Foot Locker, to mom and pop shops, to chain stores like Nouveau, Pier, Shit, who are some other ones? Shoe City, uh, Mag Park. Like if you name it, if you name a store that sells anything streetwear related, we work with them either one way or another on a brand. And so that's that. So that's the parent company. And underneath the parent company is all of our partnerships with brands. And so, you know, underneath us, we have brands like Embellish, House of Junior, Crisp, Liquid Anchors, Dice Hearts Monday, Richie Lee, uh, Club Paradise, and Reference and & Co. And so with that, you know, we offer... We offer everything. We offer the logistics, the shipping, the manufacturing, the sales. Wow, that's huge, man. You, yeah. you guys take on a lot of stuff right there. How big is your team now? I think I have about 40 to 40. I think we have roughly 40 guys. Um, I have an outside sales team in Miami and New York, but the factory overseas that we have, we have about 300 plus people over there. Wow. And, and related to that, how has the pandemic kind of affected your business? And what type of adjustments did you have to make? During I, mean, I mean, you know, everybody had a, a, I wouldn't say it affected our business, but it definitely made us change the way we, uh, we operate. 
before, obviously before it was a lot easier to project out collections going to trade shows and everything too. Um, and before we were moving a lot faster in terms of being able to produce something and getting it, uh, get it in-house. Now for us, it's just a lot of planning. I mean, you know, you heard about the situation with like the ports and stuff, how long mm-hmm. everything was taken. Like at one point there was something like 300,000 containers that were sitting on the Pacific Ocean waiting to get in and shit, you know, majority of that, a lot of that shit was uh, my stuff that was out there too. And so for us, we can't move as fast as we used to. So for, for us, it's just projecting out and just doing something before doing, uh, doing stuff at a lot, a lot longer pace. And, you know, for our listeners on the podcast, they can't really see you right now. But um, mm-hmm. Chris got on this fire as Tom Brown uh, hoodie right now, you know. Uh, good, good eye, good eye. No, yeah, good. going back to the fashion stuff, I know you mentioned, you know, me being, uh, are you an 80s baby? Like, were you born in the 80s or? 100%. I was born in 1981, man. I grew up cool. in the 80s. My, my older brother was a DJ, um, you know, kind of growing oh. up playing this crate. So he's he's sitting out there playing like, like a flock of seagulls, modern talking, uh, Duran Duran, REM, um, Speedwagon, Pesh Mode. So I grew up around that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm an 80s baby myself too. So like I related to, as soon as you said like Stussy and like, you know, all those streetwear, remember Jimmy Z? Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. All- Jimmy, Jimmy Z, Jimmy Z, Stussy. Um, shit. Uh, what's big back in the day? Quicksilver. Remember um, Hypercolor? Remember the Hypercolor? Yeah, of course I remember Hypercolor. When you would touch the, <laughs> touch the shirt and they change colors. <laughs> yeah, and then we used to always rock the, all those like, you know, the, the volleyball wear. I forgot that one volleyball. Um, was it Hang 10? It wasn't Hang 10. It was some something with the V. And then, of course, there was a Hang 10. Um, OP. Ocean OP. Yeah, that's right. The OP. And all mm-hmm. the uh, the neon colors and all that good stuff too. So I'm I'm, I'm assuming like all these um, things that you and I kind of grew up with, you know, those brands that kind of ignited your uh, passion for like fashion and and all that you know streetwear and so forth, right? Yeah, just because like I have such a wider a wide range of fashion uh, taste and knowledge, just because growing up in Santa Ana, you know, you have a little bit of that streetwear right. look, but at the same time, I grew up around you know Ben Davis, Dickies. Right, Cortez's brand, Cortez's, <laughs> and so growing up, like the way I dress, it'd be one day I'm wearing fucking Dickies, uh, Dickies. Next days I'm wearing fucking boat shoes and cargo shorts and and you know right. polka, polka shell necklace, and then the next day I'm wearing N one, I'm right. wearing N one Fubu and South Pole. I couldn't make up my mind. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny that you mentioned these realms, right? Because us mm-hmm. as Asian Americans growing up in America, right? Yeah. You know, we went through a lot of phases. I went through the Doc Martin phases. You know, I mentioned, I, I hear that you mentioned a lot of these bands that we grew up with. So it was from like alternative rock, you know, from like Depeche um, you know, Mode, like you said, to like, we went into hip hop and then R&B stage, I'm sure. And you said that your friends were like DJs. So mm-hmm. like as, as Asian American too, like, did you go through that? Like, you know, you saw something and we kind of adapted to it because we didn't really have an identity of our own per se during the 80s, 90s, right? No, honestly, I, I would say for me, my musical taste and just like me with pop culture, if it wasn't for college, that's the only thing I got out of college because college is the most waste of time ever. <laughs> Personally, college was a fucking waste of time. If I didn't go to college, I would have been fine. The only thing I could say I got out of college is just pop culture and being exposed to a lot of stuff. So going into college, you know, this is the first time I started hanging out with, you know, black people. Um, you know, going, uh, growing up in Santa Ana, it's a majority Mexicans and uh, Mexicans, set, like Latinos, actually. 60 to 70 percent Latinos sprinkled in with a, a few Asians. But, you know, I never saw like a people uh, like black people until college. 
And that was when I made a majority of my friends. That's when I got into the Source magazine. And then the Source magazine and the music and the culture, you know, from NERD to Fabulous to Nelly. And then it was crazy mixed because I was into that on mm-hmm. top of like alternative music because that, that was the era where, you know, the Strokes, the Highs, the Vines, all that right. too. And so during that era, I was heavily into music. Me and my, me and my buddies, we would go to anything from the Weenie Rose to Almost a Piece of Christmas to the NRD Sprite Liquid Mix Tour. And so that was, that was the reason why, you know, I got into so much when I mix music and fashion together is because of college. Mm. And then I, I know you're pretty much a sneakerhead, you know, just by talking to you too. What are your uh, like top three sneakers that are on heavy rotation for you right now? I mean, sneaker heavy rotation. I wear a lot of Bisbum, uh, uh-huh. Bisbum oh, myself. Dope. Yeah, I, I wear a lot of Bisbum myself. It's in heavy rotation, but you know, Jordan ones, um, mm. and right now Collegium too. My bu- my buddy, shout out to my buddy Nick. He runs his brand called Collegium, amazing brand, and that's heavy in my rotation now too. So Collegium, Jordan ones, and Bisbum. Nice. And then fast forwarding to 2022, who are some of your role models or people that you look up to or, you know, just kind of inspires you? I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of tough because people always ask me, uh, ask me this question, who inspired you? Who's your mentor? You know, what do you do? I don't really have people that inspire me. You know what I'm saying? It's like my friends and stuff like that, my close friends and stuff like that. I feel, um, I look at them and, and, you know, I'm honestly hyped about, uh, hyped with having them around, but there's not a single person I'm saying, yo, that person inspires me. That person is who I look up to. For me, every single day, for for me personally, every single day is just a battle between me and me. You know, I don't look at another man and say like, count someone else's pocket or look at somebody like, yo, I want to be like that person. For me, growing up, uh, growing up and like every single day, it's just like, yo, how could I be better? And how could I be better than myself? Because at the same time, I'm not trying to compete with anybody at all. I don't care about being in uh, the position I am and other brands and other people. I don't give a fuck what anyone does. Like that's just always been me. I don't give a fuck what everyone does. I don't give a fuck what you have. I don't care mm-hmm. what car you're driving. I don't give a fuck. I just worry about myself. And that and that's the best I can worry about. So, so Chris, uh, I know growing up in Orange County, there's a lot of Asians and Vietnamese people. Did yeah. you ever experience any racism yourself growing up in your area? Honestly, for me growing up in the area, we're very, very fortunate that in Orange County, especially Westminster Bolsa, it's 75, 80, 90% Vietnamese. But, you know, I grew up in Santa Ana. So Santa Ana, Westminster is a little bit different. There's a lot more Latinos. You know, I grew up, I grew up and I was normal, you know, the Mexican kids making fun of me, calling Chino, Chino, Nip and shit like that. But the thing is, it was, it was just so normal to me during that time. And so for me, I, I didn't really have that heavy, heavy, you know, racism like that, that we have now. It, it also could be me being jaded growing up and I was just used to that, you know? So, Chris, like uh, going back to some of the travel stuff that you were mentioning before, any uh, I mean, for me, I just fell in love with Asia the first time I went back to Korea back in 2012. I mean, you know, before then, I I don't I've never been to Korea. You know, I I immigrated here in 87, Mm -hmm. went through all the stuff that you went through. You know, I lived in Koreatown almost all my life. So I went through the whole Chino thing and all that stuff. And now it's super gentrified here in Korea. Right. And Koreatown. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, when I went back to Korea the first time in 2012, I just fell in love with Asia. And then from there, it just springboarded me to like, I pretty much went to every major city in Southeast Asia and, you know, Eastern Asia. Any favorite places that you've been to, you know, you're traveling, um, any crazy travel stories that you might want to share? I mean, for work, I'll tell you the truth. First time I went to Thailand, Thailand, I fell in love with Thailand. Mm. Um, the people in Thailand are really, really friendly. I mean, it's um, the 
nickname of the country is the, the smiling country, right? Right, um, right. Yeah, so that was a nickname for it. And so when I went there, it was just like, it's it's very um culture shock when you see somebody like they do a lot of this bowing, like you know, when you pay, they bow and all that stuff too. And I wasn't kind of used to that coming from the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, and so going to going into Thailand, just seeing how friendly every single person was. Yeah. It was it was kind of wild because the thing is from Thailand to Vietnam it was like night and day. Like, <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah. It, it was night and day because Vietnam, man, they're up in your they're up in your face, they're loud, mm -hmm. people you know, a lot of panhandling and stuff like that out in Vietnam. And people are, you know, I'm not trying to categorize Vietnam and say this is like everybody, but a lot of people out there were really tough. It was a lot of rude people out there in Vietnam. You know, the first time I went went to Vietnam actually was uh, 2014 or 15 when I was doing like a world tour thing. And yeah, yeah I mean, it, it wasn't as developed as it is now, but mm -hmm. I mean, I fell in, actually fell in love with Vietnam because of Anthony Bourdain. I don't know if you oh, watched yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, I'm, okay. a big, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of Anthony Bourdain. And I will say, like the street food in Vietnam is is out of this world. Right. And I, yeah. I can't eat pho. After I came back from Vietnam, it's hard to eat pho back here. You Man, know? have you never eaten pho in, in Westminster? We have the best pho. Oh, yeah, of course. Of, I agree. I agree. Vietnam. Yeah, yeah okay. for sure. For sure. Westminster got it down. But like, you know, because me going to like Hanoi so much, like okay, the, yeah. the yeah, the Hanoi style, style pho, you know, it's kind of mild, but then it's just so good, like you said. And yeah. the price is phenomenal, right? It's crazy. I mean, you can get like a, a sandwich, a drink for like a dollar fifty US out in Vietnam right. on the street. It's, it's you know, it, what what can get for dollar fifty now? You, can, you can't even get you can't even get a you can't even get a burger at McDonald's anymore for uh, for uh, seriously. Seriously, and like yeah, like you said too. Like the first time I ever went to Thailand was in two thousand thirteen. Uh, the first place I went was Phuket, and then nice. I went to Bangkok. Yeah, nice. and um, like you said, it's just. Just one of the most friendliest countries. The food is great. The culture is great. The people are great. The prices are great or, or was great. But uh, the last time I went to Bangkok, man, you know, they got like speakeasy bars and rooftop bars that are like, charging $18, $20 a drink. So I'm like, damn, you know? What? Yeah. Really? It's crazy. I'm like, am I in LA or are these prices in LA? Like, no, like yeah. Eight, I mean, $18 for a drink in Thailand? That's wild. It's wild, dude. I mean, because there's also places that had the street food for like dollar fifty for like the boat noodles and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And yeah. um, a lot of those places are gone now, and that's what happened in Korea too. Like in the Gangnam area, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these street vendors were pushed out. You know, the government pretty much kind of put a crackdown on it because they want you know more businesses to cater towards like you know restaurants and you know brick and mortars and so forth too. So like Bangkok definitely changed. I mean, the first time I went. So like the last time I went, um, a lot of the street vendors were kind of gone and it was in like the small cities and stuff, you know? Yeah. But um, the, the, the crazy thing, going back to like, I guess, I don't know, racism per se or what, what, what have you. Um, I remember the first time I went to Bangkok that they saw my uh, American passport and me being an Asian face. So like, whoa, how'd you get this American passport? You know, they're, you, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like everyone was in all of, you know, a, a American passport, you know, back in the days in Asia, right? But then yeah. how things have changed now, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, traveling back and forth, I mean, there's like a perception with Americans, obviously, uh, traveling in Europe, traveling in uh, Europe, especially in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, Europe is like the one place where I ever traveled outside and they find out that you're American. They're kind of like uh, super standoffish is for sure in Europe and especially in France. Yeah, that's true, too. That's true, too. And, and I'm kind of hesitant to go to Europe. I mean, well, I see a lot of people going to Europe right now, but and mm -hmm. for me, and you know, being an Asian male too, like I feel more comfortable in Asian countries, and especially during the pandemic too, with a lot of the, the sentiments that you know Europeans have against like Asians and stuff like that too. And yeah. it's kind of you know it's always in the back of your mind, right? 
Yeah, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. At the end of the day, you guys know what it is. I mean, let's mm. just not let's just say what it is. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody lumps us in as all. Every time we travel anywhere, being Asian, they just assume that we're Chinese. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And then this whole shit, it's like they just blame us for like mm-hmm. on some shit that you know we have no no control of. And it's normal. Like it's it's fucking normal. I've been called Chino Chinese everywhere I go. Like it doesn't matter where you go. And right. they don't know what the fuck. They don't know what the fuck the difference between a Vietnamese, a Thai, Cambodian person is. Everyone's Chinese. And like for me growing up too, I, I don't know, maybe you, you can chime in on this. Um, did you feel the need to like break stereotypes as we were growing up? you know, as an Asian male, like all these uh, stereotypical stuff that we saw on TV, right? You know, mm-hmm. that kind of demasculates Asian males. You know, we have to be that that model minority per se. Did you kind of, if you think back at it, like, did you see yourself kind of trying to break those molds, break those stereotypes when you're growing up? I mean, for me, for me, going to college, I'm going to college was, was it. As crazy as it sounds, you know, I had this crazy story. One of my buddies, he said that he copied me off of orientation just because I was Asian thinking that I was going to be good at math, right? And so, so the, the funny story was me and the dude, his name is Jose, he's one of my good buddies. I'm still, I'm still good friends with him now. He always tells a story about, you know, sitting, he sat next to me in uh, the math orientation, the math uh, uh, placement test just because I was Asian thinking that I was going to be good at math. And so he copies off me through the whole thing. And then on the first day of school, we're both in remedial math. And then he looks at me, he's like, what the fuck, bro? He's like, I copied off you in math. We're fucking stuck here. I was like, dude, you copied off the wrong Asian guy. Terrible. At fucking <laughs> and this is a true, this is a true ass story. The only reason, the only reason why I was an advertising major is because I couldn't pass math in a business administration. And so I, I had to go to my counselor and say, yo, listen, um, I'm terrible at math. What's the lowest form? What's the lowest math I have, I have to get just so I can get a, a degree? They're like communications. All you need is college algebra. I was like, all right, well, that's my fucking major. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I hate that. And that's a true ass story. And, you know, and obviously me, uh, being Asian, it's always normal. You know, you think you're good at math, you're martial arts, blah, blah, blah. You can't yep. play sports. And, you know, I played I played basketball. I'm a hooper, you know. So I played, I played varsity ball all the way up from freshman, sophomore year of high school all the way up. And so for me, it was always, it was always like a chip in the shoulders just because like, you know, okay, you're Asian, you're supposed to be this and that. But, you know, I grew up terrible at math. I got into fashion, I'm into sports. And so, you know, I, I kind of grew up like the, the left field of a, what, I, what you're supposed to expect from an Asian. Right. No, I asked that question. I'm 100% with you in regards to the math mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, I double majored and one of it was Asian American studies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. College, I'm like, yo, there's, there's history of, of people like us you know, there's people like that look like us. And we have history here in America. It was yeah. pretty eye opening, right? I mean, just to kind of take those elective courses. And then, yeah, like you said, <laughs> after the whole like the pre-calculus thingy, I was like, it's a wrap. I can't do any more math after that, you know? Bro, I couldn't even think about pre-calculus, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Yeah. And Chris, um, have, you ever, have you ever been to Canton Fair? Canton Fair, yes. So yeah. Canton Fair is that uh, Canton Fair is pretty much that trade show out in Asia. And every single time I go out to Asia, it's, you know, it's happening. Um, I haven't been forever, but I mean, it's just like, it's just a trade show, almost like magic, but out in Asia. Yeah, I remember, I, I think I've been there twice because uh, one of my friends um, just dragged me along, wanted me to kind of like see how big it was. And then dude, for those that don't know about what Canton Fair is, it's like, imagine like 10 Costco's stacked together and four levels high. And I did probably like, 
20,000 steps like a day, which is going walking around there. But yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the biggest, would you say is the biggest import show? Honestly, what people don't understand, if you go to Asia, importing, exporting, you can import, export anything from China, like almost anything. You can find anything in the fucking world from China. That's the I think that's the reason why the United States has such a big problem with like, uh, with like the whole trade situations. Cause like anything, you can find anything. You can find pencils, pens, fucking fidget spinners to like, if, if you could think about it, you could find it in Asia and you can import it. And it's, it's wild about how much space they have out there. That's just like endless roles. And for us, when we go out to Asia, we go out to this place that is, uh, uh, we go out to China, we go out to this place for fabrics, right? Just to find an available fabric, just so, you know, producing t-shirts or shirts. Dude, there's roll, there's probably like 100,000 square feet markets that are like 15 floors up and it, it just becomes endless. That's right. So um, last question I want to ask is, um, what plans or any kind of goals you have in store for this year or in the upcoming years that you can share? Honestly, people always ask me the same thing, like over and over, yo, what's your goal for 2020, 21, every single year? And my answer is always the same. I'm not a type of person who likes to sit there and project like, yo, I'm going to do 10%, 20% over. For me, it's just about sustained business. You know what I'm saying? As crazy as it sounds, people like, yo, what's your goal for 2022? My goal is to stay in fucking business. You can't really project out anything you can do because like shit happens all the fucking time, especially in the last two years where pandemics, closings, report issues, you know, every single day there's always going to be shit that hits the fan. And for me this year, you know, I have a ton of projects and I have a ton of things I need to do, but my end answer is always just to stay in business. I'm also the type of person that's very, very uh, low key in terms of like my mood. If you look at me on social media, I post a lot of random ass shit, but the thing is I'm not posting all my meetings. I'm not posting all my uh, all my meetings, all my projects, because at the same time, I'm not the type of person like to likes to let people know like everything I'm doing. You know, I like a lot of the stuff that I do, people don't even fucking know about because I'd rather just be behind the scenes and low key and let somebody else be the face of the project. I've always been very, very, very adamant about you know keeping low key and doing stuff on the low and moving in silence because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're the face of it or that person's the face of it. I just want the fucking check. You know what I'm saying? It's like as as long as the check clears, I don't give a fuck who is the face of the problem. Yeah, there's this quote that I always go by is real ninjas move in silence. <laughs> <laughs> is that a rap song from like Lil Wayne? I think it might be. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it honestly might be. Or real G's move in silence like lasagna. Yeah, Something like that. There you go. That, I think <laughs> that's that right there. Yeah. But man, Chris, we definitely appreciate your time. Um, it was such a pleasure just chatting up with you. Yeah. Even just talking about, you know, the 80s, growing up in the 80s and the streetwear and and fashion and all that stuff, man. Just want to say, you know, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate you. Keep representing us. And um, thank you, bro. No, I want to say the same thing to you guys, too. Obviously, I've been following you guys because you guys have a platform talking about, you know, all the Asian problems. It's like, I would say it's like the, uh, the Asian ball alert, you know? Mm. Uh, so it's not one-sided, one but like, you know, you guys are talking about problems and just posting issues that we have in the community, violence and everything, too. And you guys are actually doing something that's even even more important than I think, uh, more important than, than, than anything, obviously, is raising awareness and just letting people know what's going on in like every, like every city, because what happens in San Francisco isn't the same shit that happens in Orlando to Asians or mm. in Midwest and Asians, because I've traveled so many different places, and it just seems like, you know, it's the same issues in areas where Asians aren't common, you know? I'm honestly saying that I'm lucky, because I live out in Orange County, and we have a heavy, heavy Asian community, Right. So I didn't see all the violence and I didn't see all the hate towards us because 
I'm in this little bubble, you know, but like seeing when you guys post the shit that happens in like Philadelphia, New York, or like San Francisco, when they go into Chinatown, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, but you guys are mm. doing God's work. So I appreciate you guys as well. Man, we appreciate you, man. Thank you so Thank much, you, Chris. Chris. Yep. Yo, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you up when I come down to uh, OC. Yeah. Anytime. Dude. We, 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 uh, yeah, for sure. Oh, right. sure. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for tuning in to The Slice.